Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, I am Otto, and um, yes, I finished my PhD about fashion hacktivism. I've been trying to look at kind of what can we learn in fashion from what is happening on the internet and what computers and hacking and open source and all these things that we hear about in our daily lives and Wikipedias and all these kind of things, and can we learn something in fashion from this? That has kind of been my, my major research question throughout my thesis. And I will present a little about that, and it will be a rocket quick through my thesis, so we will have time for some questions in the end. Uh, okay. And um, um, I can just show you, this is, this is the thesis, and you can download it on, my, on, on the Self Passage website, or if you search on this, you will find it, and if you would feel like reading it, whatever. I will start by talking just a little about the tiny tuny, the minimal bit of some form of theory to then come into all the examples. It was just kind of a little what has been moving in the background to try to understand why is this, what is happening and is there some form of shift and what does it mean for fashion. I will try to put some examples of this. And to me, it's been very fascinating to look at the history of science. And the history of science in the sense of how, what are the images of the world we use to conceptualize and understand our world. And in the and period of the Enlightenment, the big machinic invention at that time was the clockworks. So all big theorists of that time thought of the world in the sense of clockworks. So when imagining, well, God has to be the big kind of clock watchmaker who's kind of winding up the planets and everything moves in perfect circles. And, of course... To the scientists at that time, that seemed, oh, the circle, everything, this, the clockwork is the perfect model. So that is, of course, why in high school and things, when we learn how planets move, we have these orreries and we, we use this, and these clock mechanisms that and, and explain perfectly the Newton model of how the world works. And, of course, you could argue that also then... Um, 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 Frederick the Great, the, the Prussian king, had this idea of automata. He loved these kind of mechanical toys. So he wanted his army to be like a toy. So that's how we kind of grow our sense of hierarchies and so on, that they should be independent, self-propelled, automatic toys. But, we, we don't. but it's interesting to keep this in mind. Because the next big invention is the steam engine. And the steam engine also changes then the perception of how scientists think of the world. Suddenly, okay, there has to be forces under pressure that kind of moves history or creates change in society. So you would have then of course Marx and scientists like or political scientists like that thinking that okay there's a pressure, there's the working class under pressure and that is gonna create a revolution or something if it's not kind of kind of steamed out with a little kind of whistle so we get a little steam out so that we can have social democracy that kind of preserves some function of society but without this revolution etc. And you would have Freud thinking in the same way that, okay, we have the subconscious under pressure from rules and all these kind of things, and if we do not learn to paint, especially men, if they don't paint, they will, their libido will be too strong, so they will become rapists, all of them. So we have to kind of let the little steam out and, and engage in culture and things like that. You remember the, the Freudian thing. And of course, scientists seeing the world like this also, so when they discovered the Gulf Stream, they said, wow, the Gulf Stream, it's, it's a steam engine. Water gets heated up in the, in the Caribbean Sea and gets sucked up into the North Atlantic and works exactly like a steam engine. So suddenly they start seeing things in the sense of as being steam engines. So 
Today, when everybody is talking about the computer age and the age of networks, etc., etc., of course, it's not very hard of us to think that, okay, perhaps, how, well, what happens when we start thinking about the world in the sense of, of um, um, computers and networks and things? This also changes the way we think about resistance and being critical to things, because what perhaps the 20th century has shown is that political resistance has been usually about stopping this machine. Society is a machine, and we have to stop it. We're in 1968, we have to throw stones and things, and put, put uh, stakes in the, in the machine to stop the machine. While what happens perhaps when we look at computers is that, well, you don't try to stop it, but you try to somehow keep the power on and bend the system in through some forms of practical action that is hacking. And hacking requires you to know how the operating system works. So it's not enough to be 17 years old and upset and stand and throw stones. You have to understand how the system works and learn more about a lot of different things to be able to kind of bend and tune the system. So if we imagine then that, that also perhaps the fashion system or all these kind of things would be operating systems, would be programs, and there would be people arguing that, okay, well, from the age of the, of the industrialism, which were the, perhaps the... the, the idea of the steam engine where we do have, I mean, the social engineering, and the engineer was the god or the, the image of the one who would do politics. We would have um, doctors looking at the body as a, as a machine. We kind of ignore that there's a soul, ignore things that we cannot really fit, and we only look at the system as a machine. And we would look at all kind of army organizations, I mean, organization of companies, etc., to work as these kind of hierarchies, self-propelled propelled machines. So what does it mean if we start looking at them as networks? Well, suddenly it becomes more complicated. Suddenly we have a lot of plugins and programs running at the same time. From, especially you can take that in I mean, from a Swedish perspective, where I mean, from all through modernism, we have tried to kind of have one currency, one higher education board, one higher judge, one parliament, of course, one prime minister, all these kind of things to effectuate it into one driver, not too much kind of dissonance. You would say that, of course, the 30s of Germany with one operator, one field, or one driver would be the absurd of, of modernism in this strive for having one control. What happens more and more today is that we're getting more and more layers. Suddenly we have a lot of different currencies in the sense of euros and Swedish currency. And then, of course, we start getting parallel currencies and you get extra points on all your credit cards and you get points on your flights. And, you know, so suddenly from having, doing barter and all this kind of trying to systemize everything into one system, suddenly it starts cracking and we have all these courts. We have the Hog Court and we have the European Court and we have all, and suddenly the system gets all these layers and you have all these programs running on top of each other. But perhaps the major shift, too, is how do we see the world in networks? Perhaps before, if we look at the left, I mean, perhaps before we've been looking at components mainly, we've been trying to focus on cogs, on specific functions, on giving things meanings in themselves, looking at kind of fracturing, atomizing the world, while the network starts constantly, or the network wants to look for protocols. The network wants to keep the communication going. It looks at the in-betweens constantly. It's trying to look at how does, does information flow, how does things match with each other. And of course, going through a little, or looking at another field, like, or now, now it's a lot of different things that happen here, but now to biology. <laughs> 
what's interesting here is, of course, that Viola tradition have been looking at, okay, where does everything come from? How does, does a specific species grow out of the, the, this soup that is in the beginning? And we've been trying to, to map these as very linear flows, like, like roots in a tree. And we have tried to, I mean, almost ignore that, of course, the, the, or what has been shown, that the genes jump between these different branches and things like that. And, of course, if we don't look at this very linear, that everything comes from one source and it's isolated to be specific parts, what does that change? Traditionally, we have, of course, seen fashion exactly the same thing. The fashion designer, the source of life, everything kind of grows out of the stem, the source of life, Karl Lagerfeld, out of his genius, nourishes different branches of all the beauty he creates. And of course, that's what we educate our designers for, to become these, the source of life. And we try to nourish them, and we teach them techniques and things, and they go back to their chamber, and they sit there in the dark. Oh, I have to come with this new, and it comes out only from me. Of course, it doesn't come from anywhere else. I'm not allowed to have any inspiration, because then I'm kind of revealed of being a copying and things like that. Everything comes from my genius, my, my writer. You know, this is, of course, how the big myth of everything, or the artistic myth grows that it's, everything comes only from, from, from within. And just kind of jumping back to, to biology then, I mean, this is also, of course, how we have been looking at cows and how we have sci I mean, structured science from what we see. So we, we usually consider the cow being, okay, this is an entity, this is something that is out there eating grass, and we don't really think that, well, the cow is, of course... Uh, 20-gallon fermentation tank for all this bacterial culture, that is perhaps, it's actually them saying, oh, mm, we are hungry, move forward, we need new grass. So the cow has to go, Arr. So perhaps they are actually also controlling the cow. But we think, of course, that the cow is the one who is in control. So there's, of course, a symbiosis between these bacterial cultures and the cow. But so far we have kind of ignored that there is this symbiosis. And we have, just like we have ignored that, of course, Karl Lagerfeld has a fantastic symbiosis of, of what, where he creates life. But we think, we want to think that he is the creator, of course. So, and that's also this bit about the network. I mean, shifting from thinking that this, everything happens in the machine to that happens in between, these, in the interactions, in the symbiosis and mutualisms that happens in between these things. And of course we can then look at symbiosis, mutualism, how bumblebees and, and, and flowers could not possibly perhaps evolve without each other. And should, one, should the bumblebees dis disappear, we wouldn't have these flowers and things anymore. So perhaps we should look and learn to look at the world much more in how, does these, how, how are these things coupled more than taking them apart. So let's look at one of these divisions that we always wanted being so keen of separating between auteur and audience or producer and consumer. We always think that they have to be separated. And we have created this wonderful modernist system over the, or industrial system of, of separating these. Where we would have the, the male engineer inside his lab inventing stuff out of nothing, of course. He would come there with his material and then just... In the flashes comes out the new kind of Frankenstein thing, the new invention. And that would be mass-produced and served to the waiting customers who would, in fashion industry, always would be considered being a, a female, etc., etc. And, of course, this has been perhaps the strongest discussed now later or over the last years in file sharing in the music industry, how the music industry experienced this, okay, something is happening here which we are not used to, really, that suddenly we were thinking that we were just 
sending out music to people. They could choose between the radio stations. They could choose between what to buy, but they were not supposed to send back or do so, or have an own initiative, be actors themselves. And of course, this has to do with copyrights and with the oil of the 21st century and who owns what, etc., etc. But we don't have to get into that discussion, even though it's getting more and more crucial in the world of fashion, and we will see definitely much more discussions about who owns what. But of course, we also have this, how then the art of designers, the art of how haute couture, the art of the unique, of this genius, is sometimes striking down into mass production, into things that were just profane, just normal, just boring, just mass-produced. And you would have that, of course, in the democratization of fashion, where the holy myth, the holy pope, Karl Lagerfeld himself, lays his hand on the profane H&M to sanctify it into producing Chanel for a very short time. <laughs> and, of course, he would say that... that are we, uh, yeah, I mean, just... I can, about the breakup, I think it's a very interesting example of the collaboration between industry and, and geniuses. You know how they broke up? H&M and, and Karl Lagerfeld, there were these big headlines in the Swedish papers that, oh, Karl Lagerfeld and H&M breaks up. It's almost like, you know, when, when Porsche Spice and Beckham or something like that. It's really, oh, it's a big thing. Oh, my God, what's going to happen? But what happened was that Karl Lagerfeld was really upset. He said, oh, my God, H&M has produced two big sizes. My petite French woman who buys Chanel, she would never buy big sizes of H&M. I have to go home, or I mean, stop this. While H&M said, oh, well, we are from social democracy. We produce for everyone, and we are so kind and nice, so everyone should be able to have fashion. So, of course, they both kind of went, came out of this as both winning this situation, both kind of made a, a fantastic symbiosis, but then suddenly kind of broke out and showed that, that where they belonged in, in this world. But I think... This is usually written about as some form of democratization because suddenly the luxury became accessible to much more people. You could, you could almost anyone could afford now a, a holy piece of Karl Lagerfeld. But what I've been looking at is then, okay, if we're not happy enough with this type of this democratization, if we want something more and if we want, or want to interfere more with fashion, how should we do that and how can we get more engaged in fashion. And of course there are many ways. I mean, usually we, we vote with our money. We say, okay, this I support, and what I don't spend my money on, I don't support. But of course there's more political will sometimes in this. And you would have some people that would say that, no, don't trust fashion, don't trust consumerism, don't do it, it's an illusion, boycott it, stop Christmas, stop all these kind of consumer spending and so on. And there would be this kind of radical idea that we can do something by boycotting it, or at least trying, of course this is a little reminiscent of this stopping the machine. And if you're really radical and if you're really upset, of course, so when Karl Lagerfeld uses um, fur in his clothes, you can put these in the, in the urinoirs and you can piss on Karl Lagerfeld if you're a man then, <laughs> and get really upset and kind of make your, your statement and be ah, upset, you know, and get a little anger out of it or something like that. And, of course, if you're really upset, you would go back to the classical gesture and start burning things, which, of course, is really radical. It's really, you see something happen, at least it burns, and it's good, and it feels... 
And you can also go out there sniping, of course. This has been done for a long time, that you start answering the, on the advertisement. You go out there and you write on it and you say, I write back, it's not only them writing, I will also answer to this. And, and of course you would find this also in fashion. So from the Fashion Week in Berlin uh, last year, they, uh, this sorts of famous street artist made this, this um, uh, sniping action or subvertising action on the H&M um, advertisement. But of course you would also think, hmm, isn't this almost a little too good? I mean, we will go home tonight and we will remember this. It's a perfect viral marketing. And of course they all know this. So today a lot of this, this tension about, I mean, who is selling out and who is not, is, is perhaps, is H&M paying Sooks to do this action, perhaps just to kind of raise a little extra attention for the fashion week for H&M? And, you know, Red Bull does this all the time with graffiti artists and extreme sportists that jump from buildings in parachutes and all these kind of things. They're never allowed to say that they're really from Red Bull, but everybody knows that they're supported by Red Bull. So, somehow... This doesn't work either if you're really upset, or what, what, what can you do? And of course, if you're really, really upset, then you go out there and you start the real riots on town. And this is, of course, in some countries, really, of course, a, a very sensitive and um, a real political issue, but for, for teenage romanticism, this is, of course, how politics should be done. But, of course, this is done by, by radicals who definitely do not care about fashion, as we all know, because they just take what hangs on the, on the chair this morning. I am not affected by fashion. Never, I don't read any magazines or anything like that, but, but well, someone had painted this gorilla on the back of my camouflage jacket, and it, it does fit my, my mood today somehow, and, and this Rage Against the Machine t-shirt, it matches very well my Molotov cocktail, so of course it, 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 it just lied there ready to be, to be, but I don't care about fashion, of course we know that, so, but I mean, so always, we cannot escape fashion, I always, I mean, I have this idea of, of myself escaping fashion by climbing up on the Swedish mountains, on the lonely mountain, I would sit up there and I would take off all my clothes, it would be really cold, but I would take off all my clothes to kind of be outside of fashion. And perhaps I will have a blanket, I will bring a blanket, a blanket, and I will sit in this blanket. And sooner or later, of course, there will come a mountain climb up on this mountain in my, in my isolation there, in my, yeah. And he would come up and, oh, you look like Björk, or something like that, he would say. So, I mean, he would always, someone would always project something on us. I mean, I cannot ever escape that, that, some, uh, that I'm in this light somehow of, of being seen in the eyes of fashion somehow. So then the, the main question, okay, if this doesn't work, we have tried everything. We have tried, I mean, we burn things and we write them, we, we crash, we do everything to avoid and climb mountains. How, what can we do then if we want to change fashion somehow? And perhaps we can start looking at, does fashion have to be ready to wear? Do we have to have this border between consumer and producer, or does it have to be that strict? And is there actually something happening in the world that makes this or dissolves these borders somehow? And just to kind of look at hacking, because I've been trying to look at how do hackers engage in computer systems, we have to just look at, start kind of, that hacking is not cracking. Hacking is usually in the world of computers considered as the kind of the positive act of building plugins and things. Crackers are usually the ones seen what the media usually call hackers, as the ones who steal your bank account and, and do these bad things. Well, hackers are usually regarded as being, I mean, very respectful, very, the ones who contribute to the community, the ones who write these Linux patches and all these kind of things for the software, while the crackers would be the more kind of, more destructive parts of that. 
But, but of course, it's very hard to show computer programs and things like that. So I will instead try to look at more physical representations of this as it might be more interesting for fashion. One example is circuit bending. Circuit bending is the creative art of short circuiting. People, fans of this, they buy old toys, especially from the early 80s, which has a lot of this chip exposed. They, un they open these, they reverse engineer, open up the boxes, and then they short circuit the different components there on the chip. So you kind of just lick your finger and you, f you move it over the, the chip and out comes all these kind of weird sounds as it, get its, as it gets short-circuited. This is uh, Brian Duffy who has the Modified Toy Orchestra and, every, and before his shows, he shows how he does this. So he has a video camera and shows on a projection how he opens and modifies very simple these toys we found at thrift stores and so on. One Casio SX, I think it is, model of old, uh, like early 80s small keyboard. He uses, I mean, he showed when I was one of these. And <clears throat> on the outside, it has a button, like demo button, you know. And you press the demo, and it plays this wham song, wake, wake me up before you go-go. You know, that's kind of it plays. But then he showed that if you short-circuit the chip, you get a Jackson 5 song out of there, <laughs> which hasn't a button. So somehow, by, licking, by, by opening the box and getting these, kind of licking on the, on the finger and leaning it over, you will release something that was hidden there by the engineers. Of course, they were having some kind of, the, the marketing people or something like that were having some deals with Sony Music or whatever, of which was the cheapest song to put in. So the engineers, oh, we're in a hurry, we put both in there and we just put one button. That's how you could perhaps could explain why it's there. But what's interesting is that by opening these toys, he liberates a lot of more energy that was in there than what he before had could access through the interface. And you could say the same on another kind of subculture, so is the Telestreet movement in Italy, who is a pirate television movie. It's over 200 TV stations out there. Of course, it's as a response to Berlusconi as the prime minister owning almost 95% of the Italian media. So there's are kind of radicals who, who work and try to, they create very simple radio or, or TV broadcast by using a, a simple TV amplifier, which you have here. You buy it for, I don't know, it could be perhaps $500 or something like that. And then you just shift the cables from reception to sending instead, and then you can broadcast your own TV show about a kilometer's range. You cannot, you cannot kind of, your signal is not strong enough to affect the other channels, but in the shadow of the other channels where there is nothing, there you can broadcast your own. So there's all kind of TV shows. Of course, they, some radicals, they are broadcasting pay television footballs for free and things like that. But of course, you would also have the Catholic Church who broadcast the local mass to these ladies, for example, that cannot go to their local broad. So in the, in the church tower, they have this broadcaster and they can see the... the Ladies can see their own priest doing the mass. So it's, of course, creating a lot more kind of community-based, too. It's not only for, for being kind of subversive. So by using everyday technology, everyday simple things, they just, by, by very simple reverse engineering, a simple trick, they manage to get a lot of more potential out of these. And it's the people, the amateurs, the people who, who are not supposed to be scientists, who does this work. And perhaps another example which has fascinated me for a long time is fan fiction. Of all these fans that love and commit so much to their, their heroes that they would know everything about the show or something like that. And they would see episodes over and over and over and they would discuss it and they would create their own magazines and so on. And of course, 
Star Trek has been perhaps one of the oldest that created the biggest community, but you would also have, of course, in Star Wars and, uh, and Rise Vampire series and uh, Harry Potter, etc., etc. But what's been most interesting perhaps with, with fan fiction is how fans have tried to, tried to look at this from a different light. So, for example, you all know Captain Kirk and Spock. So, fans have long considered thinking about what is really their relation? What, are, what is happening between these two persons? And what can you see in the episodes? And there's especially one episode that has fascinated fans all over the years. And it's one called um, Amok Time, somewhere from the 67 or something like that. And that is when, um, uh, I will do, try to do this quick, uh, Spock gets the blood fever, the Ponfal. He has to, every, every seven years, he has to go back to the Vulcan planet, to his home planet, to mate, and he has to go there, otherwise he will die of the blood fever. And of course you know that Captain Kirk is responsible captain of the, of the starship Enterprise, so he says, oh, abort mission, we have to save Spock, let's go back to planet Vulcan. Planet, uh, or, or Spock gets beamed down to the planet, and there he is drawn back into this family trauma, kind of why he left the Vulcan planet from the beginning. Oh, he had a wife, but she didn't really love him, and she's having some other, and, 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 and all these kind of things. You know, it's, and it's really, really tricky. So he gets really upset, and he cannot mate, because if he doesn't mate, he will die in the blood fever. Captain Kirk is, oh my God, what am I going to do? I have to first save my first lieutenant. And of course, everybody knows that Spock is the best first lieutenant in the whole, plane, the whole galaxy. So he has to beam down to save Spock somehow. And then Captain Kirk comes down in this, uh, all, this, all this drama. And, but finally, there was a big confusion, all this kind of, but Spock does not mate. But he's beamed up to the ship together with Captain Kirk. So they're both back at the ship, but Spock has not mate. So people, <gasps> what happened? And this episode ends with um, Spock lying in the, in the sick bay, kind of recovering, and in comes Captain Kirk, and they look each other a long time in the eyes, and then... <laughs> The door stamps behind them. <gasps> dum, 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 dum. What happened? Of course, this has fascinated fans for so long time to kind of know what is really happening there. And I think that this is really the source of what is called slash fiction, which is this where, where fans start writing in, I mean, these homoerotic dramas among the main characters in, in a big drama or in a, in a big fan fiction. And of course, what's interesting here is that the fans use their skills. They use their absolute knowledge, their love for the narrative. They know what they say to each other, so they know exactly where these hints are. So in, in Star Wars, you would have this episode of the, fir of the first trilogy of the second movie where, where um, they come to this cloud planet or something like that where, where uh, they have to repair a ship and Han Solo and this Chewbacca comes there and there's this, this black guy, um, uh, Lando, who runs this moon base or, some, or cloud base or something like that. And when they meet up, Han Solo says to, to oh, we run back for a long time together. We have done all this. But he's still very curious of how is he going to react when they meet. So he says to Chewbacca, have your weapon ready, and this kind of thing. And then they finally meet, and Lando Carisha says, oh, you old, or something like that. And then, but then finally they embrace, and ha, 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 and they're happy, and so on. So of course, oh, my God, they have life previous of what we have seen in all these episodes. Something else has happened and George Lucas hasn't told us anything what that is, who's going to tell us? Well, we have to write it, of course. Yes! 
So, of course, Han Solo has been smuggling love drugs together with Lando Carrishan before, but Han Solo got too high, and then, then he got kind of, and, and Boba Fett, this bounty hunter, he is, of course, passionately in love still with Han Solo. That's why he chases Han Solo all the time and wants him frozen into carbonite so he can kind of lean against him and, oh, and feel him and things like that. You know? Of course, this is, and there's thousands, thousands of stories that people have been writing about this. And it's done, of course, from their love for this narrative. And, of course, George Lucas says, oh, my God, don't, don't make pornography of my, of, my, of my series. But, of course, the, the, I mean, and don't, don't rape my heroes, and other fans would say. But, of course, what's interesting here is that people do this out of their love. They don't do this because they hate Star Wars or Star Trek. They do this because they love this thing, and they just want more access to it, in a sense. So what, what George Lucas has been doing now lately is, of course, that he organizes, instead, first he tried to, to sue all these people, but then he organized his own kind of competition where, where the, right, the right family values are in his, in, in his, where he is the jury member and so on. So it's only the right ones that comes and can shake hand with, with George Lucas himself, of course. So then he kind of managed to filter out a little of this. But I think it's just important to kind of keep this in mind that, that from a kind of hacking perspective, this is a perfect example because people do this because they love it. They know everything about it and they want to contribute. They want to do something. It's not about throwing stones and saying that this is bad, you suck out all our energy or money or these kind of things. And artists that work with this is, for example, Stephanie Sifuko, uh, American Filipinese artist who works with, with um, handbags. And she thinks that well, handbags is much discussed. I mean, some would even say that it's a kind of, it's a bad investment, or I mean, it's not, it's not representing good values to spend a lot of money on, on a handbag, and, uh, and so on. Well, she said, no, we have to live through this desire. This is something very beautiful. I mean, a handbag, we can, it's, it's a vehicle for dreams and things like that, so we can use the internet. We can browse through the internet and find our favorite favorite bag, and we can save it on our desktop, right-click and kind of print out the life-size image of the bag that we really, really desire, and then we can crochet, pixel by pixel, an exact copy of this bag. Of course, it will be a low-resolution bag, so on distance it will look like a Gucci bag, but I mean, the whole idea is that I will get a Gucci bag by learning how to crochet. So instead of working my boring job to earn enough money to finally spend enough money to, to buy this bag, I can spend the nights on crocheting an exact copy and learn how to crochet on the way. So it's a kind of a way of tricking me to learn how to crochet in a way by using the power, the big myth, the big fandom that, that Gucci has. So, of course, she has to help us with this, so she creates different patterns to help us because sometimes it's a little complicated with these, with these special seams. But she also makes full kind of man, I mean, manuals for us to, kind of, to, to, to be able to do this a little better. So what's interesting here is that she really tries to keep the power on. It's not at all about trying to stop something, but trying to kind of lead it to power up something else to kind of lead, bend over the energy that is invested in Gucci and try to bend it over into, into production. You would have other examples that are perhaps not that hacking, but they still use a similar tactic. And this is the Spanish Yomango movement. And uh, Yomango, Yomango, you know, the, the, the fashion brand, and Yomango is Spanish um, uh, slang for I steal. So that is why they have uh, Viona Ryder, who was caught shoplifting <laughs> as their saint, of course, the protector of the Yomango movement, the hero. And what they mean is that, well, let's say that Descartes was right, and, and I think, therefore I am, 
and Sartre too, that I am seen, therefore I am, and perhaps today then I consume, therefore I am. It's a quite philosophical movement because they mean that it should be perhaps a human right to consume, even for people who don't have enough means to consume what they want. So they teach out methods for stealing, which of course we can discuss the ethical issues of, but they want to make a point in this that, well, you should not say that consumerism is only bad, but we can somehow perhaps use consumerism and the myths of lifestyles to empower somehow. And of course they've been working from the beginning with very much of a kind of anarchist, this very kind of radical image of, of, of what they're doing, a kind of Robin Hood aesthetics and so on. But they always had emphasized this, the part of the kind of uh, the lifestyle brand. So they always say that when you cut off the alarm, you should put, instead of being only a thief, you should put up the kind of your mango label to label it as a lifestyle move. It's not only stealing, but this is a kind of a philosophical movement. But just to kind of look at how they argue for this, because this is where it gets really interesting and where it becomes something else than only stealing, I think. And that is when, of course, from the beginning, they were very kind of, yes, down with consumerism, don't stop the machine, be Robin Hood, steal from the rich and give to the poor and all these kind of things. But later they were, no, well, consumerism, what is really happening in consumerism? Consumerism produces desire. And desire is not always that bad, is it? I mean, I, I have this, I have this, there's this t-shirt here, this Prada t-shirt, and I feel desire for it. And we are both actually in a form of desire system that consumers and producers that I feel, we feel this desire. I want to wear this t-shirt, this t-shirt wants to be on me because that's going to be cool. So we feel this, this closeness somehow. And this t-shirt is a prisoner in the shopping mall. It's there every day behind the bars of the alarms. And me, I spend most of my life in the shopping mall. I'm a prisoner in the shopping mall because I cannot really get out of that consumerism. So we are both co-prisoners. We are both happily in love, and we want to break free and live happily ever after. If it's just those alarms that is in the way for our happiness together. So we need to embrace and be together and just kind of jump out of there and come out free and live happily ever after. So I think what's interesting here is that, that they kind of embrace this. I mean, being anarchist and, and against this kind of consumerism, they still use the power that is inside the system of desire. And you would have other groups that kind of work with similar ways of trying to look at, at can we instead share clothing, for example. So there's a Swedish activist brand called Shareware, um, public domain clothing, where they also try to liberate clothes by cutting off the old labels, kind of uh, do either recycling and so on, and then they put in these kind of shareware labels, where they mean that, well, perhaps you shouldn't, the things that are lying in the back of the wardrobe, perhaps you should actually bring it out and share it with others. It's almost like kind of a, a library of clothing, perhaps... If it's too warm here, you can actually leave your jacket and put, you have the shareware label in there and tomorrow someone will be cold and they will take it or something like that. But can we reimagine the way we have this stuffing our wardrobes fuller and fuller and, and instead of somehow trying to figure out other systems, this could work. In the sense of ownership and so on, of course you would have the black spot sneaker trying to look at this of, as you buy a pair of shoes which are union produced and all kind of nice and fine, you would also be being a shareholder in the company for every shoe you buy, you get a stake, etc., etc. so you will be, in the end, a shareholder. And Adbusters have been working more on this with different kind of the entrepreneur 
label of trying to look at social entrepreneurship not under the classical rules of entrepreneurship. I mean, entrepreneur being someone in between that takes something, but it's not someone that is somehow kind of entrepreneur or something like that, someone that is actually contributing to the economy by being an entrepreneur or something. So all this, what does all this mean? Well, in the world of, of computers, there's been a long discussion, or at least since a, a famous book called The Cathedral and the Bazaar was written in 1999 by a hacker or programmer guru, Eric Raymond, where he described that, okay, previously we have, we have thought of every form of organization like a cathedral. It has been this top-down hierarchy. If it's windows with Bill Gates in the top, if it's the church with the Pope in the top, if it's the company with the CEO in the top, or if it's then the fashion brand with the designer kind of being in the top and, and having this hierarchy of, of anonymous workers underneath. So perhaps what we see more and more is the more kind of Linux version, the, the bazaar, which is a much more flatter organization where a lot more are contributing. Instead of being kind of hardware programmed of being closed, it's a much more open system where people share and all these kind of things, much more free, Wikipedia, etc., etc. You would have examples of the, of the bazaar. Whew, now I have to be extremely quick, because now we come to my, what, what I've been trying to do in my research. So, perhaps we, should, we, should, we have a, should we skip this part? No, okay. <laughs> no, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, it took a little time to get there. Um, so Self Passage is the brand that I started for, uh, or a kind of experimental brand I started for or before my PhD, but that be became kind of the, the PhD research over And I started out doing a recyclopedia, and that was kind of small methods. I started kind of recycling the clothes I had in the back of my wardrobe, and of course a lot of people do this, but I tried to do kind of small cookbooks out of this, trying to produce small methods so others could, could do this. Some people ask, oh, that was very nice, how did you do it? And then, oh... Perhaps I could actually just hand them over the PDF of how we actually did this small little kind of re-sewing of, of my pants or whatever. And I've also been, been doing the, putting this into more of a fashion context, doing a little bit more elaborate versions, and also been published in, in magazines like Icon and so on, where, where this has had, had a little bit more kind of fashion energy or something like that, whatever, yeah. But I've also been releasing a, a collection of abstract accessories. It was about a little bit more than a year ago at the Stockholm Fashion Week, where I produced three different kits, of, um, of uh, which I called abstract accessories, which were kind of do-it-yourself kits. They had a small essay, and then they had a kind of a, some form of tool inside. So this is the textile punctum uh, kit, which builds on a kind of a photographic theory background, but it's actually a very simple tool because I got a stain on my shirt once on a, on a kind of a memorable dinner. And then I thought, well, perhaps this stain shouldn't be washed away because we had a very nice discussion about this stain. So I took needle and thread and I embroidered the contours of this stain to kind of preserve it as a kind of monument of this memory of this, of this dinner. And as this, as this shirt has been kind of washed and washed and this stain has disappeared, now it's only the contours left that is a kind of the manifestation of, of this memory. And I think what, what happened was, was most perhaps interesting is that from being an anonymous shirt that would kind of die, or I mean, as it got loose, lost its form and, and so on, and started to not look any nice, perhaps I would have thrown it out or, or taken it away earlier. But now, as it had this memory, it became very special and I would wear it and cherish it, not because it's fashionable, not because it's material, blah, 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 but because of this memory itself. So perhaps there's actually ways for us to kind of, instead of washing all memories away and constantly look for the new, we can actually find ways to kind of hook up 
on certain specific features that we would be interested in. I've also been working with, with trying to look at how, how do we organize the, the kind of the production of, of fashion, even in, from a kind of subcultural point of view. So I've been looking at the zine culture. Usually, I mean, a lot of the fashion magazines today, especially the radical ones, are starting from a scene. So ID magazine or Dazed and Confused and so on would start as being photocopied by some angry Central St. Martin students or something like that that wants to say, oh, no, I'm not going to listen to that. I'm going to make my own, my own fashion scene or something. What, also, what always happens there is, of course, that the editor, the creator of the scene, becomes another fashion editor that is going to be there, another kind of creating their own, own new hierarchy their own cathedral, which will become this magazine. So I've been trying to look at, can we make it radically democratic or democratic instead? Can we create the scene that is actually just a method and anyone can start it? So you would kind of, okay, we here, let's say that we meet next week and everyone who wants to contribute, they have made a double-sided A3 page and copy that in 144 copies. And then we come back in a week, a week later, and we shuffle these pages together and we stamp them together and we, we have 144 fashion magazines. And as we, sh as we shuffle the pages, we will have 400 or 144 unique fashion magazines so because the different faces, uh, we will face someone else's page since we, do, since we shuffle the pages. So every, every issue will be unique. And then, and then we, uh, this I've been doing in Istanbul and Burros and, and many other places to create these fashion magazines. Because then we go out there and we take our magazines and we put them into the, the real fashion magazines out in the stores because we use, of course, the expectations that people have that when they buy an issue of Vogue, they want to see the latest international fashion. But as a little appendix, free this today, they also get the extremely local fashion only from our MIT Brunswick campus right here this week, fresh out from the print, whatever. I think what's, what could be interesting here is what would happen if people really started to like these kind of editions and perhaps even start looking, oh, I want this edition, where can I find it? And start looking through the fashion magazines to try to ha -ha, get out there if it would be successful. Another example I ran together with an um, 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 artist group in Istanbul called Oda Projesi. We, we ran a, a temporary fashion brand called Italianaulus, which was called about of, of the, the yard where this group was based. They had been working seven years with the neighbors, the, uh, which were from a kind of migrant community from eastern Anatolia and so on. And we tried to look at, can we create the various kind of small fashion brand out of recycling clothes? Very simple. Can we... But instead of, usually fashion always promises something to the future. It says how much faster I'm going to run, how much more sexy I'm going to be. Something, it always promises something. It's always going to be better if I wear these clothes or if I just get this latest thing. And of course we could not really promise a lot of things there. So could we instead work with the history almost like when embroidering these stains? So what we did was that we collected garments to be recycled, but we also collected kind of fill-in forms where people wrote down why they had, why, where they got this garment, why they liked it, where, if it had been worn at some special occasions, why they didn't like it anymore, or what could be remembered about this garment, and they filled in these forms, and it could be anything from, oh, I stole it in the military service, to uh, my baby puked on it, or something like that. That's kind of the, the, the memories that they would have. But what happened in the end was that we had a, a fashion weekend where people could, could get these garments that we had produced, because we recycled them, and we also kind of cut up these stories to every Every garment would have a kind of a mixture of these stories. People came and they said, oh, this was, or we made about 20 to 30 pieces. They said, oh, it's, okay, this is an interesting piece, uh, how much is it? And we said, no, you cannot uh, buy it, you have to change with the clothes you're wearing yourself. So if you want this t-shirt, you have to take off your t-shirt and, and trade it. 
So they said, oh, well, okay, fair deal. Okay, I, I could do that said sum. But you have to fill in this form, we said, too. So you have to fill in this, this, this um, form of your own T-shirt because we're going to work further on this. And what happened was that it was an awful business idea. <laughs> out, of, out of having about 50 people asking about these garments, yeah, it was uh, only one who did the change. But a lot of people said, well, I can come. Because as they fill in, they realized, oh, well, perhaps I shouldn't trade off this T-shirt, really. But I can come tomorrow with 10 garments, yeah. almost everyone said. And we said, well, we know that's not possible. We said, it has to be here or here and now. But I think what was funny with this experiment, even though it was a lousy business idea, what happened, of course, was that people started to reflect a bit just a second time about, well, perhaps our clothes actually do have a little bit different values than we usually think they have, especially in the first kind of exchange moment. Another project I've been running has been uh, at, at the mental institution in, um, in Estonia called Merimetsa, where I've been working with the most kind of well patients there. And we've been trying to look at how could students work together with, with um, uh, the production unit that they have at this institution, which is, um, I mean, like they have at most institutions to, to have a little organized work. And it's the most well patients that, that do a kind of almost little... Um, well, state-subsidized, almost a little sweatshop in the sense that they would produce only cheap bed linen and things like that. And we tried to think about, well, could they do some form of more, well, fashionable things? And can we use fashion that is usually seen as such a bad thing and only anorectic and only bad for us? Could it somehow be used as empowerment in the sense of could it, people know that there is a form of desire and can they produce something like that? And could we together with the students then produce this? And we worked together with a fashion store, I mean, both the academy and then the, the Merimets, the production unit, and a, a fashion store in, in Tallinn that were very interested in, in, in selling these things. So the idea was that they would all kind of trigger each other to keep the production rolling every half a year or something like that. And, of course, the engine would be the... the um, um, the academy that would have new students every year so they could run a very simple workshop or something like that. We also tried to kind of de-anonymize the work a little to show that it's actually real people behind this. It's actually perhaps even your neighbor that is, is, is in this production facility. So we, we put kind of fingerprints. Everybody who has been engaged in the process got a fingerprint or put, put their name or their tag onto the, the labels of the garments. And in the end, we also had a, um, a French portrait photographer taking the images where the... The, the clients, the patients themselves would, would model them, and, and we call this the Merimetsan alchemy, which first was an, was an um, we have done it twice. The first collection we made, I mean, aimed only towards this fashion store, and the second one became uh, also an exhibition. Um, and the first collection sold out totally, uh, or produced about 50 garments, but it worked really, really fine. What didn't work was that the Fashion Academy didn't want to run this workshop because they said, well, we cannot set aside one week because the second years are having ethnical fashion. It's not possible to do this type of project, unfortunately. But the media, everybody got really happy about this project. So, so perhaps somewhere else this might happen. You never know. Okay, okay. Uh, another project I've been running very quickly has been the Dale Skuhak, which was uh, in a small place in, in Norway called Dale. <clears throat> Uh, with about 2,000 inhabitants in a small village three hours north of Bergen. And they had a shoe factory that had been there for 106 years. And it had had 250 employees uh, 50 years ago, and now it was only 10 left. So it was a little kind of oldish factory. They survived on producing only kind of main, oh, folk dance shoes for Norwegian folk dresses. The bunad, which is, of course, a very holy thing for the Norwegians. And, uh, and then, of course, there were the 
they've mainly survived on kind of state um, orders like police shoes and the static police shoes or some, some special things. But that's, they felt that it's only a matter of time before that's also going to kind of disappear. So what I tried to do was that I worked together with six Norwegian fashion designers to try to hack this shoe factory in the sense of not hacking, I mean, not trying to change the hardware, but trying to change the software, the methods of how shoes are produced. Not trying to have new machines, new lasts, new models in the sense of that, because they can't afford to do that investment. So can we just, as designers, look differently at how production is made? So together with the designers, we spent three days at the factory trying to kind of misuse the machines together with the workers, trying to look at can we sand different, can we somehow bend how the system works at, at the production facility like this, kind of the, can we hack the factory, how, how it works, because what's good was that all workers, since there were so few, they actually knew all how everything worked in the whole factory, so it was very easy to work with everything in the whole factory. So Steve Stöldal, which we had to the left there, she's been working, she's um, normally based in London, but she has her own brand, and she produced shoes with, for example, unique um, punches, so every pair would be unique, but also kind of mismatches of, of, of the sanding of the soles and so on. And we would, in the end, so every pair would be unique that came out of the factory. We also had a fashion photographer taking, taking images of the, uh, of the final results, and um, uh, also in this kind of Norwegian-ness to kind of promote a little that this is really Norwegian. And all the designers felt that, most often when they come to, to fashion fairs and so on, almost one of the first questions they would get is, where is this produced? And if it isn't produced within the European Union, well, then it wouldn't be really interesting for, for this size of, of designers. So producing it in Norway was really an ad advantage for, for their authenticity as Norwegian designers. Just a very, very quick thing. I sent in, uh, this maybe became a little book, a little small method book called the Dollar School Hack Book. And in this, they also had these images that, that a fashion photographer took. I sent it to the um, Euro Fashion Awards 2008. It's run by the German Foundation for, in, for Fashion Industry, the Deutsche Stiftung in Bekleidungsindustrie or something like that. I sent it there, and I thought, well, this could be a sustainable project. I could send it and see what, what they say. It's a book. It's not really a collection and so on that they were usually... But what happened, <clears throat> I was... They, they called, or someone called, and said, yeah, congratulations, you are one of the award winners. And I went, oh, what is this? At first, I didn't really understand what it was, but yes, we are from the German Foundation, and yes, you, are, you will come to Munich, to, to the ISPO Fair, to get your prize. There will be um, ceremony and so on, but we have a problem. We have a 20-meter catwalk, and we cannot only show shoes. It's too small. We have to show something else. It's too small for the photography and so on. But you sent us pictures of garments. Wonderful blue and white striped garments. And I was a little confused. No, I sent a book about shoe productions. No, blue, white striped, a mixture between a coat and a tent. Beautiful garments. And of course, these are the bed linens that we covered the, 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 the designers with. And so, on. so first I thought that he was kind of joking or this, that there is this kind of fashion mistakes, kind of what is the fashion statement and not and things like that. But then, I mean, he was really open and he said, okay, of course, it's actually a production process. I mean, we cannot... Show, it would be wrong to show the shoes too. So perhaps, I mean, it's a project that is about production, so the outcome is perhaps not that interesting as the process itself. So what happened in the end was that there was this model that carried the book out on the prize ceremony on this velvet cushion out on the catwalk. So I think this is, of course, how, how, 
how an academic would love to see their work presented one day in there. Unfortunately, my thesis didn't get carried this way, but at least I got a small part of it like this. I will be very quick in the end. So, so. Um, I ran a, a project in Istanbul called Hackers and Hot Couture Heretics at the, at the gallery for six weeks uh, along a very busy street in Istanbul in the city center called Istiklal Chadesi where almost a million people pass by every day. And we had this fantastic gallery, really an old banking um, place where you could look in almost like a kind of aquarium and see everything that was happening in there. And what happened there was that for six weeks we had new designers coming every week to show how to update or recycle clothes in different ways. There were junkie styling from London showing how to remake men's suits for a week. There were, as this is an example of uh, uh, Megan Nikolai from, from New York who has been writing this book, um, Generation T, 108 Ways to Remake a T-Shirt. So she was showing how to re recycle T-Shirts. So every week there were new things happening. We were open nine hours a day for six weeks. And we had between 200 and 400 people every day coming about. And we were very busy and totally wasted in the end, of course. But we had this relay of artists. So every week there was something new happening, everything from crocheting to knitting to all these kind of things. So it was really an interesting way of, of how people kind of engaged with fashion. I think what's most interesting with this project was what happened in the end. Because in the end, Shareware came, this Swedish group who makes this public domain clothing. And they were, so okay, we're going to liberate the last pieces of clothes that were left in the gallery and so on. So we're going to change the labels and make our statement and kind of, so it's going to be people going to kind of share their clothes and it's going to spread out in the city this, this virus of sharing clothes. So they printed t-shirts, they got a little extra stuff and kind of made special collections of, of uh, t-shirts and, and um, also some garments. They had open source patterns and things that they had sewn together and labeled them as shareware. But what happened in the end was that, well, people who came were not that keen. They were not really that interested in, in these free clothes that they got at the gallery for free. They wanted to do things. They came there because they felt, oh, but can't I print the T-shirts myself and then take it or something like that. So perhaps what's interesting there is that perhaps it's not really, people didn't come here to get free stuff. They didn't come to get some form of free fashion, but they come to be engaged because they would love to do something. And I think that's really kind of a, a lesson learned from this that, that perhaps also from, from the mistake of what you could look at Yumango, perhaps not so, so much about taking these things as feeling engaged in this production of desire. Whatever. To kick off this event, we had the Swaparama Rama, which is a, an open source event of, of Wendy Tremaine in the States, which is a, a big clothes swap. But in the Swaparama Rama, it's also the idea is also that designers are there with sewing machines and so on to help people alter these clothes. So there's screen printing, there's a lot of buttons, there's all these kind of things where people can change their clothes somehow. So what we had there, we had a, in, in a nightclub together with a fashion event that's called Istanbul Street Style, where they usually present a little kind of underground design or something on a nightclub. So we had this Swaparama there. It came about almost yeah, around 500 people to share their clothes. The entrance ticket is a bag of clothes. To come in, you have to have a bag of clothes and you put this in a, in a heap and then you're, you're allowed in and do whatever. You can take whatever and you change all these clothes. And in the end, I mean, uh, after the event, we, 
there was going to be a catwalk in the end, and, and people really didn't want to kind of leave, so we had to kind of pull out the cables in the end at 12 o'clock to get people to, to, to leave because there was going to be a party coming up later. But we also had makeup artists and so on, so people could model themselves, their, their clothes, or at, when the DJ was playing and so on, they could come and take over the catwalk themselves, and people, there were also some models, but pe most people were modeling themselves their clothes, and in the end there was this catwalk where everybody kind of would show off their things that they had been doing, or those who wanted but I think what was interesting here was that the feeling that, well, we had created our own fashion scene from our old clothes that was the kind of the surplus of the system, these carcasses of us, or could somehow be re revived by us doing this together and having the DJs, having the kind of the props and settings for a real fashion event, and we managed to energize these old trash into becoming something that we really felt was, wow, and we shared this and we felt that, Oh, I'm not alone by my sewing machine at home. There's also others out there. And this has been taken further by a, an American group called House of Deal that run the Style Wars, which is a kind of a mix of, um, of po poetry slam and, and a styling event, where they're at the nightclub to the music, they have two teams or people coming from the, from the audience, and they have two models and a lot of recycled stuff that they then, on five minutes, have to, to remake in front of the wild audience that after five minutes there's a bell ringing and after doing all these, these um, styling and so on the bell will, will ring and this, um, the models will step out on the catwalk and the, the audience will vote in real time and then it's over and there's a winner and then starts the next one. I don't know how many exactly they run a night but there's quite a few turnabouts kind of battles every night. So I think just to kind of sum this up what we've been seeing I think in general is that in general, fashion has moved from a very centralized system with one fashion capital of Paris 50 years ago or something like that to becoming decentralized with more fashion capitals. And then we have now, of course, a zillion different fashion weeks and people engage and you would have bloggers and, and internet communities and all these kind of things where the fashion system has become much more of a distributed network where it's perhaps not, we don't really know who to listen to, but there's a lot of voices bazaaring or buzzing at the same time. So instead of thinking of fashion as trickling down or bubbling up and being so hierarchical and that you want to dress upwards or whatever, perhaps fashion is much more flatter, that it's much more about dressing for your neighbors and dressing for your friends in the same community, and you use these community tools to understand what fashion is and how it's produced. So when I talk about a molecular fashion, that is because it is much, much smaller. It is not anymore only a question about the molar, the big hierarchical structures, but much, much more about the small components that are somehow networked into much more interesting synergies than what we before have been seeing. And of course, we see more and more of this on the top scale too, with Louis Vuitton working with Comme de Gazon, and you have all these kind of uh, Armani making car interiors, etc., etc. You would have a lot more kind of collaborations, but also on a much lower level. So if we want to sum up quickly <gasps> what fashion hacktivism is, I think it's just to kind of keep something in mind that it's about trying to promote transparency, form alliances, to multiply, to access technology for others, empower users, decentralize control, make constructive assemblies, but perhaps most important, to keep the power on. It is about really loving the system that you're working with and use that passion to somehow kind of liberate those energies for much more people, or much more people that before were only consumers, but now are also some form of co-producers. So that's why this is a little vroom like that. Thank you. Thank you.